sing in the shower, I promise I'm not going to sing my sermon. Because she wouldn't like it. Um, Julie's just asked me to remind you all that this morning Paul's running the first of his, his races to raise money for ground level missions. So Paul's uh, doing a marathon in Manchester today, which rather him than me. Uh, please consider sponsoring him. All the money's going to really good causes. This morning, I want to tell you a story about my childhood. Oh, come on. I need more sympathy. I need more empathy. It's one of those stories. You know how everybody's got fantastic uncle? My fantastic uncle was called Brian. And once a year in summer, he and his wife used to come with a camper van and park on my grandparents' drive and stay for about three weeks. And that was the magic of summer. Uncle Brian was... He was huge. He was massive. He made, a, made Eric look short. He was a big fella. He was ex-Navy, and his two kids had grown up. He was probably only in his 50s, so like, he had a lot of energy. So he used to play with us kids, and he used to whiz us round and round and round and chase us and teach us outdoorsy things. He was a fantastic bloke. He had a glass eye. It's all right. You can laugh. It's one of my stories. He had a glass eye. I never, I, I, I cannot remember the tale of how he lost his eye. I'm sure it was epic. But every now and then, and like the benefit of hindsight tells me, that when he got fed up of chasing us round and whizzing us round and felt like he needed a rest, he used to pretend to pull his glass eye, well, he used to pull his glass eye out and chase us with it. So he'd go, and we'd all scatter. Five kids, when my cousins were there, just scattering, climbing trees, anything to get away from Uncle Brian's glass eye. I told Neil the other day, we were out camping, and this came back to me, and I told him about it, and then told me I was about 30 when I realised that there was no way he'd plucked his eye out and chased us with us. What he'd done is that, and chased us like that. So I spent a good proportion of my childhood running away from somebody's fingers (laughs) that didn't have a glass eye in them. I promised Megan I'd tell that story as well, because I told her and she thought it was funny. You didn't think it was funny as I thought you would, but hey <laughs> Neil nearly crashed the van when, when I told him I was so stupid, I thought I'd been chased by a glass eye, and it was just a bloke going like that. <laughs> we might come back to that. This morning, I want to talk about Easter. When I first became a Christian, I didn't have a church background at all, so I was kind of all right with Christmas, but when we got to Easter, I was a bit confused, because I got like bank holidays, bunnies and chocolate down. But I didn't really grasp the importance of Easter. So I asked a lot of questions. Because actually, I think it's important. If you don't understand, ask. It's quite simple. It's the only way I know anything. Um, So I want to look a little bit about an aspect of Easter this morning. I can't cover the whole thing because it's too big. So I've just picked out one little aspect of Easter I want to talk about. Because Easter is actually the greatest victory of all time, ever. Easter's about Jesus, the Messiah, saving not just a generation, but a whole world for all time. But you see, victory only ever comes after a battle. And when we think about battles, we sometimes, we've got a very human view of it. I'm going to ask my friend John to play a clip now about a battle scene that I really love. Don't jump, there are loud noises. Rohan, my brothers! 
I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day. An hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down. But it is not this day. This day we fight. By all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand, men of the West! That's enough, John. Thank you. You see, I love a stirring speech. Good motivational speech, nothing pleases me more. I love a fight for a good cause. But the victory over sin and death that Jesus won at Easter beats that fight. You see, it beats it because Aragon is appealing to the strength of men. So even if he wins that battle, and who knows? Because it's a big force coming against him. Even if he wins that battle, that's in the strength of men. And the trouble is that mankind from the very beginning of time has been messing it up. We fall short of God's glory. We fall short of holiness. Our entire history, we mess it up. So if we rely on the strength of men, we'll fail. And the reason that Jesus was the greatest victory of all is because it wasn't the strength of men, but the will of God. You see, Jerusalem was an occupied city in an occupied nation. The Romans had come and they'd gone, we're here. You'll do it our way. They're our laws. Because the Romans were very clever They allowed you to retain a lot of your own culture. So in a sense, the Romans gave the Jewish religious leaders a bit of a cocoon. So they allowed them to still operate, but within their oversight. See what I mean? So they were occupied, but they had some freedoms. See, the Jewish people were waiting for a Messiah. Now, Messiah is a term largely used in the Old Testament, a couple of times in the New Testament, It equates to the word Christ, Christos in the Greek, which means the anointed one, Messiah. It's one who comes to save. So the Jewish people were looking for a saviour. And some of the Jewish people thought that saviour was going to be like Aragon, a big stirring warrior king who was going to come and focus them all. They're going to overthrow the Romans and it was all just going to be fantastic. And it was going to be victory. That's what some people thought was going to happen. The people were waiting for a leader who would take them away from tyranny and give them freedom. A leader who would rise up and break the uh, yoke of oppression. Then Jesus arrived on the scene. And he was performing miracles. And he was sparking controversy. And he was doing things that, that people were like looking. People going, hang on, what's this? Who's this? He says those strangest, outrageousest things and he does the most amazing things. Who is Jesus? Some of the religious leaders were just so caught up in their own system of laws and keeping everything the way it was. They just saw Jesus as a threat and they sought to to trip him up because they got a really blinkered view of what the Messiah would be. But when Jesus came, he wasn't what anybody expected. He was more. He was more. Throughout the Gospels, a question crops up. People go, 
Did you see that? See what that blood just did? Could that be the Messiah? When he calls the first disciples, he says to this guy, I saw you under the fig tree talking to your brother. And for like such flimsy evidence, he goes, could this be the Messiah? Is this the Messiah? How did he know I was under a fig tree talking to my brother? See what I mean? So people are asking the question. When Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman at the well, she goes back and tells the village, I met a man who taught me, told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? So this question is bouncing round. Everywhere Jesus goes, people are going, is he a holy man? Is he a rabbi? Is he a teacher? Is he the Messiah? Is he, is, he, uh, is he stirring up trouble? Is he a rebel? People were watching for signs and waiting for signs. And Jesus looked like the real deal. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talked to his disciples. He said, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed of you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in, bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone. There's a lot happening here. Jesus has basically said, who do the people say I am to his disciples? And effectively forced Peter to go, actually, you're the Messiah. So he set him up for this. And then he gives him this incredible promise about, by the way, that when he says, Peter, you're the rock, he means the knowledge of Christ is the rock. So the knowledge that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's what our faith built on. Not a man, not ever a man, only ever on Jesus. So he's made all these promises, and the disciples must have been really quite excited. Oh, we're going to get to like do all these things. That's going to be amazing. And then Jesus says, don't tell anyone. <laughs> you can do all this stuff, but don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone I'm the Messiah. That's amazing, isn't it? If you just had that revelation that this man that you've been wandering around with, ministering to people, and you've been seeing miracles, and you realize that this was the Messiah. This was actually the man that everybody was waiting for. And then he said, yeah, yeah, you're right. That's who I am. Now shut up. Wouldn't you be frustrated? I would. Why was it important that the disciples didn't run around saying, actually, Jesus is the Messiah? I think it's because it wasn't yet time for God's master plan to be revealed to everybody. You see, there was a danger that the people would rise up and try and make Jesus king. There was a danger that they'd try and turn him into Aragon and say, come, come on, Jesus, lead us, lead us in revolt, lead us in battle. It was a danger that it might, it might just completely throw the reason Jesus was actually here. You see... Jesus didn't come to stir up civil unrest. He wasn't that kind of Messiah. Jesus didn't come to save a nation in battle. 
But the rescue plan that Jesus brought was bigger. It was for all of humanity. It was a bigger plan. It was a better plan. And it was outrageous. It was an absolutely outrageous plan that the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the Son of God would come and lay down his life. It's an outrageous plan. As soon as this conversation's happened, Jesus goes on to say, uh, the Bible goes on to tell us that from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of law, and that he must be killed on the third day and raised to life. So Jesus tells his disciples why. He tells them that this is the plan, which they find quite hard to understand, which, yeah, it's baffling, isn't it? But it is the plan. You see, the battle that Jesus was waging wasn't against the occupying force. It was against sin and death. It wasn't against the religious norm, the status quo, the people with power. It was about salvation. Jesus didn't want to overthrow the Romans. He wanted to open up the possibility that they could know his father. It was actually opening up salvation to the Romans in all that happened, which is just mind-blowing actually. Back to when Jesus says to the disciples, who do the people say I am? They threw out one or two suggestions about what the people thought. They said, John the Baptist, which is a bit odd because like quite a lot of people saw John the Baptist actually baptize Jesus. So I don't know why they thought it might be John the Baptist. Yeah. Um, But one of the suggestions is Elijah, who's an Old Testament prophet. And actually, Elijah was succeeded by a guy called Elisha. Now, bear with me. I am coming back to Easter. But I want to look at this idea of a battle and how we perceive the enemy. Um, So, in the book of Two Kings, Elisha, who's a prophet who comes after Elijah, um, it's like the the people mistake Jesus for him and why do they do that? Because actually when you read the first few chapters of two kings, Elisha's wandering around and somebody will say, oh, I've got this trouble and he'll go, oh, I'll help you. And he'll call on God and God will perform a miracle. Uh, there's a, a woman who's, who's starving and she's going to have to sell her son because she's in, she, she doesn't have anything to eat. All she's got left is a little bottle of oil. And he says to her, go and get everything you can that will hold oil, every jar, borrow and beg from your neighbours, everything you can get. And Elisha prays to God and pours the oil out. And it fills every vessel until everything's full. And that's enough for it to sell and live on. So there are miracles of provision. There are miracles where he clears water supplies for cities. There are miracles where, where um, Elisha um, talks to a leader who's got leprosy and tells him to go and bathe in the river of the Jordan and he's clear. So you can see parallels really in that kind of activity and what Jesus is doing. So actually, I I can quite understand why the people must go. Actually, when I was a child, I heard all these stories about Elisha in the temple. Talk about Elisha. It's a bit like that, isn't it? So I understand that one a little bit. There's parallels between the miracles in the Old Testament and the miracles Jesus performed. See, Elisha lived around 848 B.C., one of his other tricks, he gave strategic advice to the king of Israel at a time when he was at war with a country called Aram. I am getting to a point, bear with. Um, the king of Aram kept setting ambushes for the king of Israel 
And God kept telling Elisha where all the troops were hidden. So Elisha told the king, and the king's men never went there. And the king of Aram gets really cross, and he gets all his cabinet ministers, for want of a better phrase. It's all his army leaders, all his counselors. He gets them all in one room and goes, which one of you is a traitor? Who's grassing me up to Israel? Because they know where I am. And this little timid voice goes, "Uh, uh, uh, actually, boss, um, it's not us. It's the prophet Elisha. The things that you whisper in your bedroom, his God tells him and he tells the king. So the king of Aram says, go find out where he is so I can send men and capture him. And the report came back, he's in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all round Elisha. I wanted to look at this from Elisha's life because sometimes we feel like sometimes we feel like it's it's me or maybe me and a couple of my mates, and I'm surrounded by the ugliest, most threatening bunch of enemies ever. And and where's God in all this? Sometimes the battles we face feel like that. Feel like we're there, and then the enemies are surrounding us. And sometimes we're able to see. Some, some of us, sometimes we see where God is in this, and we can see the encircling army of the Lord in this Old Testament model. So, so there's us, there's the enemy, there's the Lord around it. And sometimes I think when we sing that, that song that we sing a lot at the moment, our love, when it feels like I'm surrounded, I'm surrounded by him, sometimes we're not seeing that quite right. So sometimes it feels like, well, I'm here and I'm surrounded and I'm looking at the enemies and the problems and the issues I'm surrounded with. And I haven't quite got the sight to see that surrounding that is God's army. But actually, I think the reason that Jesus didn't come and take a generation by force is because the victory he won is bigger than that. You see, on that day, the Jewish people had a rich history of God turning up and saving them in that way, in dramatic ways, in liberating people. Look at two things here. The servant saw the enemies surrounding him, but Elisha saw God's deliverance. And Elisha prayed for the servant's eyes to be opened. Perspective is an amazing thing. Sometimes we see the problems because we've taken our eyes off the solutions. Perspective is an amazing thing. And sometimes we need people to come alongside us. I need this. When I'm down, I need somebody to come and say, Hey, Joe, just remember... God's got this. Actually, God's bigger than this. Testimonies like Linda and Eric this morning. Yeah, I was in a mess, but God's bigger than this. God's got, got this. That really encouraged me. Because part of our faith is to encourage each other. So when we can see God at work in somebody else, we need to be telling them. We need to be encouraging them. We need to be saying, Rob, that guitar's ace, but the way you use it to serve the Lord blesses me. Do you see what I mean? We should be encouraging each other. 
the victory that came that day at Dothan was a victory for one generation, for one set of people there. The victory that Jesus wins is for all people, all time. I'm going to keep coming back to this because it's really important. You see, the people who were looking for Jesus to be a military messiah and come and rattle out their armies would have got less of a blessing if that's what happened. The people who wanted Jesus to be a political messiah and come and set right all the constitution and all the religious stuff, they would have got less than they got. When Elisha and his servant were delivered from that sticky situation by God, their victory was limited to time and a place and to the people involved in that story. The victory that Jesus wins at Easter is not limited to time or place or any specific group of people. It's bigger. It's bigger. The battle that Jesus won was through the cross and his death on the cross. But it was through his death and resurrection. And that powerful thing stands for all time. You see, Jesus said, one of the last things Jesus said to his disciples was take the message to everybody on earth. That message is for the ends of the earth, not just for one nation, but to the ends of the earth. Not limited by nationality, gender, class, education, or culture. That message is for all. It's an interesting thing about Dothan. It's only mentioned one other place in the Bible, and it's the place where Joseph's brothers tore his multicolored dream coat, Joseph, tore his coat, chucked it to the wolves, threw him in a pit, thought better of it, pulled him out and sold him into slavery. It was a place of defeat for Joseph. But actually, if that hadn't have happened, Joseph wouldn't have been in a position to save his family in a time of famine. And Moses wouldn't have led the, the nation of Israel out from Egypt and slavery into the promised land. So my point here is a very quick one. It's just, in God, defeat can become a victory. Yeah. A setback can be part of a greater plan to bring blessings to a wider circle of people than we could ever imagine. You see, Jesus' death looked like a failure. It looked like a, a setback. It looked like a terrible thing. Yeah. But through that sacrifice that Jesus made on the cloth, cross a blessing that could never have been imagined something bigger something better something wider something deeper something just outrageous happened man was put right with God so anyone who calls on the name of God can be saved it's not up to us to be good anymore or right or to take the appropriate sacrifices to the temple to cover our problems Jesus covered it all Isn't it incredible? So I mentioned Moses leading uh, this nation out of slavery. They did dither about a lot, but that's because they're human. Put it as simplest, God's plan is always the best plan. And we might not understand it when we're in the middle of the battle, when we're surrounded by enemies that look threatening, but God's plan is always the best plan. Back to the New Testament. I wanted to look at that because I think it gives us an idea of what the Jewish people were thinking when they were looking at Messiah. They were thinking, they were thinking Old Testament. They were thinking God's going to turn up with armies and chariots and fire and we're going to fight that way. And it's all going to be great. But actually, the plan was bigger. 
I'm going to read from Luke 22. This is about Jesus' arrest. So we're running up to Easter now. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them, one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. See, Jesus makes it clear that there's not to be a violent response to his arrest. Because Jesus knows that he's submitting to the will of God. And that's the big battle here. The big battle was Jesus, the Son of God, submitting to death. Submitting to that death, that horrible death on the cross where he carry our sins, go through death and resurrection and set us all free. Jesus submitted to arrest. He submitted to an unfair trial. He submitted to an unjust sentence because that was the plan all along. Jesus could have called the armies of angels but he submitted to the plan. Jesus was handed over to the Romans because the Jews didn't have the power to do anything horrible enough to him to satisfy their bloodlust. Crucifixion is a horrible and brutal Roman punishment. But actually, that's the public part of the battle. Jesus died on a cross publicly for all of us. But Jesus' death wasn't the end of it. If you remember in Matthew, Jesus has said, I tell you, tell you that you're Peter on this rock, I'll build my church. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. That means hell doesn't trump heaven. Yeah. That means that through Jesus' sacrifice, hell has no power. Jesus effectively kicks the gates down and goes, no, sin and death don't reign anymore. Yeah. I do. That's why it's the greatest battle. It might have been bloodless, apart from one. But that's why it's the greatest battle, because the victory is astounding and far-reaching and beyond anything, anything that we could have done, anything that any man could have done. Jesus was crucified on a day we refer to as Good Friday, which always makes me smile, because it seems like a particularly horrible day. But he rose to life on the third day. This is what Easter's about. Easter Sunday... Jesus rises, not as a spirit or a ghost, properly in flesh, properly broken death and resurrected to life. You see, that's the consequence of the unseen battle. Our sins paid for publicly and what Jesus endured for resurrection so that he could have a resurrected life and we have a resurrected life, that's beyond beyond our knowledge but we know why Jesus did we know why Jesus did it in Hebrews um, the writer to the Hebrews explains it like this Jesus did what he did because it was for all time not just once one generation 
In Hebrews 7.24 it says, But Jesus' priesthood is permanent. He is there now to eternity to save everyone who comes to God through him, always on the job to speak up for them. So now we have a high priest who perfectly fits our needs, completely holy, uncompromised by sin, with authority extending as high as God's presence in heaven itself. Unlike the other priests, he doesn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sins every day before he can get around to us and our sins. He's done it once and for all, offered himself up as sacrifice. That's from the message version. I'm increasingly loving the way the message version deals with some of these power verses because it it makes us understand just the power of what he did, the power of what Jesus did. And unlike any other priest, he doesn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sins before he can get around to looking after us. He's done it once and for all. So actually Jesus now mediates for us in heaven. That's what this is saying. It's saying that, that we're free from sin, and actually when we're in trouble, Jesus is sat in heaven at the right hand of his Father going, I've covered that. I've covered that. I know, I know, I know Joe's done that again. I'm really sorry, Father, but I've covered it. I've covered it. Because without that, I couldn't stand here and talk to you about anything. Not even Uncle Brian and his imaginary eye. It's Jesus. He's done it once for all. He's offered himself up as a sacrifice for us. You see, the battle Jesus intended to fight wasn't like Aragon before that black gate. It wasn't rousing men up to overcome for a day. It wasn't a battle situated in one time and place. It was more than that. Jesus' death led to resurrection. I've got a second clip to play for you, which I'm sure most of you will recognize. Can you play that clip, John, please? interpreted the deep magic differently. That when a willing victim who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead, the stone table will crack, and even death itself would turn backwards. 
We sent the news that you were dead. Thanks, John. Peter and Edmund will have... I love that film. I didn't show you the, the scene where they kill Aslan because it frightens me to death. I think it's horrible. It's really scary. It's a kid's film. frightens me. But actually, I showed you that clip because that's about resurrection. You see, C.S. Lewis wrote The Swords of Narnia to teach us something about the heart of God. So in these stories, Aslan the Great Lion is a picture of what Jesus did for us. It's a picture of a king who would sacrifice himself to cover um, the the mistake of a traitor, a character in there called Edmund who makes a bad mistake at the beginning, which leads to Aslan's death, but ultimately, ultimately frees everybody. Um. So I love Tolkien, but in terms of my faith, I'm with Lewis, not Tolkien. Aragorn is probably my favourite character in Lord of the Rings, but he's only a man, albeit a man of the West and quite buff. He's still only a bloke. (laughs) Sorry, did I say that while speaking? (laughs) See, there's a great example of why it's only because Jesus sat there now going... (laughs) Covered it, it's covered. <laughs> a man can only lead us to a temporary victory. Jesus won a victory yeah. that goes beyond all time. Yeah. Why did he do it? Why? The answer to that's in Hebrews as well. In 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's why Jesus did it, for the joy set before him. What was the joy? The joy set before Jesus is the church. Not the buildings. The people that make church. The body of Christ. And the joy set before him is for the whole mass of people that are the church. But not just for that. It's for all the individuals within that mass. The joy set before Jesus when he endured the cross was you, and you, and you, and you, and even me. Isn't that humbling? It's all the people who have heard and responded to the good news, but it's all the people who haven't heard yet. Jesus went to the cross for them too. And our job is to tell the story. That's Easter. Easter's good news, the gospel. The gospel means good news. Good news is the good news that Jesus did what he did at Easter so that we could have rightness with God. But actually that gives us a story to tell as well. And it's a story that we have to share because all the people haven't heard the story yet was still the joy set before Jesus, the potential for them to come to him. Isn't that big? 
I'm scaring myself now because that's big. You see, we're not like Elisha and the servant, cut off and threatened in the middle of a circle of enemies. Because of Easter, we have a personal and intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So if we're in the middle of a battle and you've got a set of ugly enemies surrounding you, waving sticks at you, actually Jesus stood outside of that, encouraging you from the sidelines. He's with you. That's Easter too. That's God with us. Jesus is with us. He's present in us by the work of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, the Bible tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. No enemy circling us can get close enough to cut us off from Jesus. It's not that picture now of us there encircled by the baddies, but we can see salvation. Salvation's here. In that circle of the baddies, we're now stood with Christ. He's in us and we're in him. That's the greatest battle. That's the change of perspective. That That's why I read the, the, the Elisha story. Because I wanted us to understand that help isn't outside of us anymore. It's here with us. It's personal. It's close. If the band wants to start coming back, that would be absolutely fantastic. You see, we're back to Uncle Bry. He was a great bloke. He really was. But with the benefit of hindsight, I know very well that he didn't pluck his eye out and chase me with his actual eye. And in a sense, I think sometimes we get frightened by stuff that's not really real anymore. That the devil chases us with the metaphorical glass eye of our sin and failure. With a metaphorical glass eye of, of, of fear. But it's not there anymore. Why is the glass eye not there anymore? Because Jesus conquered all that stuff on the cross. When I was 30 and I realized I'd been chased around by somebody's fingers doing that, I felt stupid. And then I thought it was funny. I'm 50. I don't want to get chased around by a metaphorical glass eye. Actually, my failures don't amount to anything. It's Jesus victory that matters told you I'd work it in Meg took me a while I want to stop being chased around by a metaphorical glass eye I think we all do because actually when we get hold of what Jesus has actually done for us that's just it's beyond comprehension that's why I said I don't have time to talk about this because God's grace is too big. So I'm going to stop and land it and hand us back to the band, who I'm sure are going to lead us back into that place of worship that was just such a blessing earlier. This is how I fight my battles. 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 This is how I fight my battles.
Oh 